0: Continue this morning to look to God with eagerness. We'll look to His Word, uh, Acts chapter 1. In the first book, O Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when He was taken up, after He had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom He had chosen. They asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. And when he had said these things, as they were looking on, he was lifted up.
1: Father, I think of a moment in the book of Revelation where it says that all heaven was silent for about 30 minutes if I remember it right. And I can't imagine that there was silence because they were just stunned at your glory, stunned at your magnificence, stunned at your beauty, stunned at your authenticity, stunned at your integrity, stunned at the power emanating from you that no one can explain and no one can stop, They're stunned at who you are And so, Father, even if just for a few moments we sat in silence, just to acknowledge who you are, to receive who you are, to allow you to focus our minds on what's really important. And I pray now that you would come by the power of the Holy Spirit and capture us with your word. Lord, far be it from us today that we would talk and hear about your power without experiencing your power. Lord, we don't just want to learn another lesson. We want to encounter the living Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit. Whatever that looks like, Lord, is up to you. Sometimes you come in a whisper and sometimes you come in a clap of thunder. But however you come, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send the Spirit among us, that we would experience the very things that we're talking about today in order to confirm your word and exalt your name. We love you, Father, for what you'll do. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray, amen. The story of the book of Acts is the story of Jesus Christ ministering through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit. Luke tells us that his gospel was about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And as I said to you last week, I think that that word began is very important because it implies that Jesus' earthly ministry was just phase one of his ministry and not the final phase. When Christ departed from this earth, he didn't so much entrust his ministry to his people, as he continued doing his ministry through his people. The ministry of the church is still the ministry of Christ. It is totally focused on Christ. It is by him, it is about him, it is through him, it is to him, it is for him. And so then at the end of the day, he gets all the glory for it. The story of the book of Acts is the story of Jesus Christ ministering through his church by the power of his Holy Spirit. And so with this in mind, Luke begins by drawing our attention to a day when Jesus was gathered with his disciples, and he began to teach them. He began to commission them. He commanded them to stay in Jerusalem and to wait upon the promise of the Father, and he told them that this promise had to do with the coming of the Holy Spirit, but he didn't say anything more. He left things pretty open, pretty abstract, pretty unclear. Mainly, he just commanded them, and he expected them to obey. And so this week we pick up the story in verse 6, and we see that the disciples were gathered there together with Jesus, and they asked him an important question, a little bit of a wrong-headed question, but it was important nonetheless. They said, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? Now John Calvin famously said that there are almost as many errors in that question as there are words in that question. Lots of misunderstandings there. But rather than going into the details of the errors that are uh, implied by the question, I just want to speak on the behalf of the disciples and say that they were not out of line to ask the question, even if it was uh, misunderstood or misappropriate or whatever. Misinformed is what I meant to say. Luke tells us in verse 3, you'll see there, that Jesus had been speaking to these people about the kingdom of God for 40 days. And so it's no wonder that their minds were filled with questions about the kingdom of God. And as Jesus began to talk about the coming of the Spirit, we should not fault the disciples that they were wondering how the, how the coming of the Spirit and the coming of the kingdom were connected to each other. Their question was wrong-headed, but it wasn't out of line. And so Christ did not rebuke them for their question. He did not sort of point by point straighten them out in their beliefs. But what he did do was he said a few things that really focused their attention on more important things, at least relatively more important. First of all, he said... It is not for you to know the times or seasons that the Father has fixed by his own authority. And I just love that sentence. God is God, and he needs no one, amen? He does everything by his own authority. He consults no one. He needs no advisors. He answers to no one. He needs no accountability team. God determines his purposes by the counsel of his own will and then with perfect sight and perfect insight he makes all of his plans and he bases his promises on his plans. Some things that God does He clearly reveals to his people, and other things he chooses not to reveal. In this case, Jesus said that it wasn't for the disciples to know the specific times and seasons that had been set by the Father for the kingdom, and I think we would do well to listen closely to Christ and take this lesson to heart. Beloved, when it comes to the things of the kingdom of God, when it comes to the end times, to eschatology to the last things whatever you prefer to call it this subject is very exciting it's very entertaining it sells lots of books lots of dvds it packs out conferences it's 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 uh it gets our attention because it's important and it's real but it's it's so possible for us to be distracted by good things that we miss the great things We get so caught up in details that are frankly none of our business that we miss the thing that God has said is our business. And so Jesus just simply said in compassion to his disciples, brothers, these things are not your business. The times and seasons set by the Father belong to the Father alone. Here is where I want you to fix your attention, to fix your thoughts, to fix your eyes. I want you to wait upon the promise of the Father. Look what he said in verse 8, probably the key verse in the whole book of Acts. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. It was not wrong for the disciples to ask a question about the kingdom of God, but it was necessary for them to wait upon the promise of the Father and to focus on on the fulfillment of that promise. That was God's will for them. And when the promise of the Father was fulfilled, they were then to focus on testifying to the reality of Jesus Christ, and it had to happen from Jerusalem outward. The explosion of redemption had to go from Jerusalem to Judea, to Samaria, to the utter ends of the earth. It could not happen another way. Jesus didn't command this just because they happened to be in Jerusalem. If he was hanging out in Rome or in Elk River, he would not have commanded what he commanded here. He would have told us, go back to Jerusalem. This had to happen from Jerusalem. I tried to show you briefly last week that I believe the Garden of Eden was roughly equivalent to the Promised Land and that probably where Adam and Eve fell into sin was somewhere roughly near Jerusalem. And so from the place where humanity descended into chaos... God meant to burst forth with redemption out of chaos. They had to wait upon the promise of the Father, and when that promise came, their job was to proclaim Jesus Christ. In Luke chapter four, Jesus came and said, I have come to proclaim liberty for the captives, and the liberty that he came to proclaim was himself. Jesus came to preach himself, and now in Acts he's saying, my beloved brothers and sisters, Your job is to wait upon the promise of the Father and then you testify to me. I proclaimed myself and now I give you my power and you go out into the world and you proclaim me as well. While the disciples were listening to Jesus and trying to process all of this and I doubt that they fully understood what he was saying but they were trying, they're taking it in and somehow or other something happened that was unexpected and that they did not know how to process, I'm sure, Luke doesn't give us a lot of details and so we shouldn't speculate too much about how this looked, but somehow or other, while they're talking, in the blink of an eye, Jesus was lifted up into the sky and transported into the immediate presence of the Father. He was enveloped in a cloud that stand that stood for the holiness and the presence of God. He was ascended into God's very presence. In Protestant Christianity, we don't make much of the ascension, but we should. The ascension of Jesus Christ is just as important as the incarnation of Jesus Christ. It is just as important as the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This moment of ascension is the moment where Jesus Christ was enthroned as the great king and high priest of heaven forever and ever and ever. As God, Jesus has always ruled and reigned over heaven and earth and he always will. That has never changed and it will never change. But the author of Hebrews tells us that as a man, Jesus had to undergo a process of suffering and of obedience and of perfection. Jesus Christ had to be tempted in every way like we're tempted and intensely so, except that he did not sin. Jesus Christ had to obey his Father all the way to death on a cross. Jesus Christ had to obey the most impossible command in the world. Adam received an easy command eat everything you want, just don't eat that one thing, and he failed. Jesus received the most difficult command, deliberately take upon your shoulders all the sins of the world and die a torturous death on the cross, and he did that. And having done that, he was perfected, and so God raised him from the dead, and God brought him into his presence where he was enthroned as the king of heaven and earth and as the eternal, perfect, faithful, sympathetic High priest. The author of Hebrews would have us believe that Jesus' time on this earth was essentially like his ordination process. He was being made perfect for the role that he would play forever and ever. And beloved, I just want you to hear me say that the moment of his ascension was the moment of his enthronement. The moment of the ascension of Jesus Christ was a moment that will shake and shape the world forever and ever and ever. This is a huge moment. And furthermore, The ascension provides us with a prophecy about the second coming of Jesus. Because look there, it says that while the disciples were staring into the sky and wondering what had happened, two angels appeared beside them and they said, men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven, he will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. So in a roundabout way, the angels ended up answering the disciples' question. They wondered, when will the kingdom of God be established? And there's so many errors in their question. But there's still something valid about their question. And so really the angels ended up addressing it. And basically what they said is that when Jesus Christ returns and explodes upon the sky with life and light, when he comes upon the clouds and gathers the nations and judges every soul and gives judgments that are irreversible, In that day, the kingdom of God will be established and it will never, ever, ever be overturned. Disciples, focus your attention on that. Do what your master has said and know that he will come again. And so the specific times and seasons are not our business. I reject any effort to try to name a time and a date when Jesus will return. It's a futile effort. It's an unnecessary effort. What we ought to do is look to Christ and wait until we receive power from him and then we ought to spend our lives exalting the glory of Christ, knowing that one day he will come literally, not figuratively. He will come physically, not spiritually. And he will come visibly, not invisibly. Every eye will see, every ear will hear, every tongue will confess, every knee will bow to Jesus Christ the Lord. That will happen. In the same way that he ascended up into heaven, so he will come back down. Beloved, the ascension of Jesus is a prophecy of his second coming. It is a promise from our Father. And our Father keeps his promises. And so we can take this to the bank. The Lord is coming again. All of this happened at the foot of the Mount of Olives near to a little town called Bethany. And when Jesus was taken up, the disciples traveled back to Jerusalem. It was about a a day's walk, a Sabbath day's journey, Luke says. When they arrived in Jerusalem, they went into that famed upper room and they began to wait upon the promise of the Father. There were about 120 of them. They had to wait for about 10 days and somewhere in the midst of those 10 days, Peter rose up and drew to their attention the fact that one of the apostles, namely Judas, had forsaken his post and therefore he had to be replaced. And he was right about that. He quoted Psalm 69, and he quoted Psalm 109 to prove his point, and he interpreted them well. Psalm 69:25 says that Judas Kemp would become desolate, which means that his allotment in the kingdom of God would be taken from him. It would be removed. There would be no more name or no more house for Judas. His days would come to an end. He would be utterly forsaken and utterly destroyed. And then Psalm 109, verse 8 says that because of that, another should rise up and take his office. We don't have the time to press into Psalms 69 and 109. I wish we did. I would love to take you there and read them carefully with you and show you how Peter got to the place where he got because he was interpreting the Bible extremely well. He was 100% spot on with his interpretation of Christ. But in my view, when he turned to application in verse 21, Acts chapter one, verse 21, when he got to the application of it, in my view, he got a little bit off. Peter concluded from his interpretation that, the, that it was the apostles' responsibility to replace Judas. But I don't see anywhere in the Bible where there is prophesied or commanded that the apostles should do this. Jesus Christ appoints apostles. Nobody else appoints apostles. And it was not the apostles' job to do this. But Peter, in his zeal, led the disciples to choose a couple of people. He wanted people that had been with Jesus from the very beginning and had witnessed his life, his death, his burial, his resurrection, and even his ascension. And he wanted to choose from among those to replace Judas. Through a process, they brought it down to two people. And then they brought those two people before the Lord and said, Lord, which one do you choose? We've narrowed it down for you. And then they cast lots, which were basically like dice. And the lots fell to Matthias and the apostles installed Matthias as the replacement for Judas. Now I will tell you that biblical scholars and pastors alike are divided on how to interpret this text. It's about 50-50. Some people feel that this process actually was driven by the Lord and that Matthias actually was God's choice to replace Judas. And in my heart, that's a possibility. Others say that the apostles and particularly Peter got ahead of the Holy Spirit and that Matthias was not God's choice to replace Judas but that in fact the apostle Paul was God's choice. God decides the time of his choosing. God decides the means and the manner of his choosing. He does not need us to invent processes to fulfill his promises. This, to me, reminds me very much of Abraham and Sarah when they got ahead of God and figured that they had to help him fulfill the promise, and they ended up birthing, uh, uh, what's his name? Help me. Ishmael, thank you. They, They had the right zeal, but they had wrong wisdom, and I see this in Peter right now. Peter and the others were commanded to wait, and that was it. They were not commanded to do anything else. And I think that the pain of waiting often causes us to be impatient, even when we only have to wait 10 days. And sometimes in the midst of our waiting, we just think that we have to help God do this and that. And the apostles, in my view, did something that was not unforgivable or horrible, but it was not in the pocket of God's will nonetheless. To me, Luke is saying in chapter one, here's Peter before the baptism of the Holy Spirit, and then in chapter two and following, check it out, a very different man. Here's Peter with the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Here's Peter when he was depending on his own wisdom and being his normal, impatient self. You remember the Gospels? Peter's a very impatient, impulsive guy. I think that's what was happening here. And in chapter two, Peter is just under the fountain of the power of the Holy Spirit and doing the will of God with great, great effect. However we interpret these verses, and we ought to give each other room for differences at this point, The more important issue before us today is what happened on the day of Pentecost. The day of Pentecost was one of several celebrations that the Lord commanded the people of Israel through Moses to have. So as many as could come, they were supposed to travel to Jerusalem for this feast. This feast took place 50 days after the Passover, which is where the name Pentecost comes from. And its purpose was to celebrate the year's harvest, So all the farmers would harvest their crops and at the end of the harvest came the day of Pentecost. So Pentecost was a time of rejoicing in the provision of God. It was a time of celebrating a, a whole year's labor. It was a time of sort of taking a Sabbath, if you will, and enjoying the fruit of an entire year of labor. And then over time, Pentecost also became a celebration of the giving of the law of Moses because the Jewish people believed that the law of Moses came on Mount Sinai 50 days after the Exodus. And so over the years, Pentecost came to symbolize harvest, it came to symbolize celebration, rejoicing in God's provision, and it came to symbolize the giving of the law through Moses on Mount Sinai. Now on a practical level, Pentecost was the most well-attended feast of the year simply because the road conditions at that time of year were the most conducive to travel. And so at any given year, on the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem would be filled with Jews, with converts to Judaism, and with curious Gentiles from all over the world. On and near the day of Pentecost, Jerusalem would be filled with noise, it would be filled with activity, it would be filled with an international flair. One day when I was in India, I was in this city called Allahabad, and it's where two very important rivers unite. And every so many years, the Hindus believe that they need to go and, and dip themselves in those disgusting cow filled rivers. And they come by the millions. So this, this city has already got six million people in it. And while we were there, an additional like four or five million people showed up. And there's not a lot of hotels and stuff, so there are just people all over the place. Crazy, crazy environment. I assume that Jerusalem is a little more organized than India, but probably kind of crazy like that. And it's almost like God knew what he was doing. It's almost like God had planned it from before the foundation of the world. He chose the day of Pentecost to be the day when he would fulfill his long-awaited promise, not a random choice, beloved. The disciples were gathered together, and the house in which they were staying and waiting and praying on the Lord, that place was filled with a sound, suddenly with a sound that sounded like a mighty rushing wind. I don't think it was an actual wind. It was just somehow the sound of a great mighty wind, and it surely signified the power of God. While they were reeling from the shock of this sudden noise, another sign appeared to them. It was tongues of fire. I spent some time yesterday just closing my eyes and trying to imagine what that looked like, and I have no idea what it would look like. I just could not conceive it in my mind. Some of you are artists. Maybe you can help better creatively just thinking about what that looked like. But I think what's more important is that Luke tells us very clearly that these tongues of fire were visible to the disciples. This was not an imaginary thing. This was not a feeling. They saw something. They saw something that looked like tongues of fire. And when the Holy Spirit was ready, those tongues of fire were divided and they rested upon each and every one of the disciples according to the will of the Holy Spirit. And the disciples began to speak in other distinct and actual languages as the Spirit allowed them to have utterance. So I want to be really clear about that. These people were not just babbling, They were speaking actual languages that they did not know by the power of the Holy Spirit. First came the wind of God's power and then came the fire of his purity and then came words for proclamation. Power and purity and proclamation, that's what was happening on the day of Pentecost. Evidently, the noise of this could be heard in the city. Because Luke tells us that people from around the city began to gather near this house and they were bewildered when they got there. They weren't sure what they were seeing. It was unusual. It was not like anything they had ever seen before. As they settled into that moment, they each began to realize that they were hearing proclaimed the mighty works of God in their own dialect, not just in their own language. If you look at the end of verse six, if you have the ESV, I'm not sure what the other translations do, but at the end of verse six, uh, chapter 2, verse 6, the SV translates that word there, languages. But it ought to be translated dialects, because that's what the word means. In the Greek language, there's a word for languages, and that's glossolalia. That word is used in other places in Acts 1 and 2. But then there's another Greek word that is dialectos. And you can hear our word dialect there. That word does not mean uh, language in a general sense. That word means my particular heart language, my accent, my particular dialect. So people were not just hearing the gospel proclaimed in generalized ways, they were hearing it in their very heart language. If Americans had been there, New Yorkers would have heard it in their way of speaking. Southerners would have heard it in their way of speaking. Westerners would have heard it in their way of speaking. Midwesterners would have heard it in their way of speaking. The Holy Spirit was presenting them with a customized presentation of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and it was a miracle, beloved. There was a miracle in the speaking. We should not withhold that from the Spirit or from the disciples, but the main miracle was in the hearing. Somehow the Spirit came and Christ was proclaimed so that it grabbed the hearts of everybody. You can imagine that the people were just totally confused by this. They did not know what was happening. Some were amazed. Others began to mock, saying that the disciples were drunk. I don't know how that would have explained it, but somehow for them, that's all that they could think to say. At this, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, stood up and preached the sermon of his life. And he did it without preparation. He did it without notes. The only preparation he had was the years he walked with Jesus and the 10 days that he had just waited in prayer. Otherwise, the Spirit grabbed him by the heart and said, Peter, you're the man. Stand up and preach. Nobody appointed Peter except the Holy Spirit himself. And so Peter began his message by calling the people to attention and boldly declaring the disciples were not drunk, but that they were the visible fulfillment of Joel chapter 2. And he quotes those verses. Please look there with me. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, on your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams, even on my male and female servants. In those days I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. They shall preach aloud of the wonders of Christ is what he means. And he turned the people's attention to Jesus, and he said that Jesus had been attested to by God himself. In other words, it's like God went into a court of law, raised his right hand, and pointed at Jesus, and said, he's the one. He's the chosen one. He's the savior of the world. And God did that by doing signs and wonders and many mighty works through the life of Jesus Christ. Now the thing that you have to understand is that Peter was preaching to a bunch of people who had actually been there in the days when Christ was crucified and in the days before he was crucified. So they knew his reputation. They might have even seen his mighty works They could not deny the power of his teaching. They could not deny the reality of the miracles that he had done. Peter was simply pointing them to things that they knew. God had mightily worked through this man and everybody knew it. The leaders killed him, but they knew he was an unusual man. So Peter masterfully focuses their attention on Jesus and then he says, listen to me, it was this Jesus who you crucified. You gave him up. You crucified him, but guess what? This happened according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Peter was basically saying you did what you did but God was in total control of the situation because he had foreordained this entire situation in every dot and tittle. At the end of the day it was not the Jews who struck Jesus or the Gentiles who struck Jesus. There's no need to have that debate about who killed Jesus. God the Father struck Jesus. This is prophesied in Isaiah 53 and God did it according to his own definite plan and according to his own foreknowledge. He struck his son for us. He did it. But even so, God then raised him up from the dead because Peter says, quoting Psalm 16, that it was not possible for death to hold him. In other words, beloved, what Peter is saying is to, to the crowd, he's saying that Christ died, but he could not remain dead because it had been written that he would not remain dead. God promised it through David 900 years ago and this had to come to pass. Look with me where he quotes there. Psalm sixteen, eight through 11. I saw the Lord always before me for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh will dwell in hope. For you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Next, Peter helped the people understand how he saw Jesus in these words. And again, he did such a masterful job. You'd think he spent hours and hours preparing this, but he was doing it off the cuff. He was doing it by the wisdom, the power of the Holy Spirit. And he said, listen, people, you know that those words were written by David, but you know that they cannot be about David. You know that David lived and that he died. You know that he was buried. Everybody in Jerusalem could take you right to David's grave. It would be just like going to Washington, D.C. and knowing where JFK's memorial is. Everybody knows where that is. And everybody knew where David was buried. They knew that Psalm 16 could not be about David. And so Peter masterfully turns their attention to Jesus and said, in Psalm 16, David was writing about Jesus. David was saying that he would be raised up from the dead. And then Peter told them that we are all eyewitnesses of the fact we saw the risen Christ. We saw him repeatedly. And so we are here to testify to you about him. And then look at chapter two, verse 33. To me, a stunning verse. Peter then says to them, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. He's talking about Jesus here, beloved. He's saying that Jesus received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit. Now he, Jesus, has poured this out so that you yourselves are are seeing and hearing. Jesus is doing this. On the day of Jesus' baptism by water, he was enveloped in the Holy Spirit. And I believe that on the day of his enthronement, when he was brought up into heaven, God enveloped him in the Holy Spirit all the more. Jesus Christ was the first one to receive the promise of the Father. He waited upon the Spirit, and God poured out the Holy Spirit upon him in tremendous, tremendous power. And now everybody who is in Christ must also receive this same Baptism, the pouring out of the Holy Spirit that caused the wind and the fire and the words to flow were the result of Jesus going to be with his Father. It was the result of the promise of the Father being fulfilled in Christ and then through Christ. And then I want you to pay close attention to what I'm about to say here because it's a a huge turn for Jewish people and also for us, but it takes a little thinking on our part. The next thing Peter does is he quotes Psalm 110.1. Psalm 110.1 was famous among Jewish people. They knew that it was about the promised Messiah who would come to be both king and priest and who would rule and reign forever and ever. And Peter is saying this psalm is about that man and the way that I know it's about that man is because he was raised up from the dead and he was escorted into the presence of the Father and he has been enthroned. God has made him both Lord and Christ. Life and light are about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. People of Jerusalem, I have risen to tell you we're not drunk. We are filled with the Spirit, and we must proclaim Christ to you. It's all about Christ. And with that, Peter brought his message to a close. What a masterful, masterful explanation of the life, death, burial, resurrection, exaltation of Jesus Christ. What a masterful explanation of what had happened on the day of Pentecost. And now the only question was, what would the people do? Not too many days before this, Peter shrunk back in fear because he knew that that connecting himself with Jesus would probably bring his death. So now that he had so openly proclaimed Christ to the very people who killed Christ, what would they do to him? What would they do to the disciples? What would happen to this little band of 120 people that were walking in obedience to Jesus? Well, Luke tells us that Peter's message cut the people to the heart by the power of the Spirit. And they asked Peter, what should we do? If all this stuff is true, what should our lives look like? What should they be about? And look there with me at verses 38 and 39. Peter says these things to us as well. Repent and be baptized, every one of you. Turn from your wicked ways and go into the water where your death and your life in Christ will be symbolized. Do this in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sin, and then you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. You too will be baptized with fire, for the promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, which I take to mean Gentiles, everyone whom the Lord God calls to himself. With many other words, Peter tried to persuade people to come to Christ and dissuade them away from the things of the world, and by the power of the Holy Spirit, about 3,000 souls were added that day. That's the way that Luke puts it, 3,000 souls were added. That word added ought to make us ask the question, added to what? And that's a very important question because I believe this brings us to the pinnacle of the miracle of the day of Pentecost. Our answer to that question must be added to the church And the reason I say that is because of what Luke writes in verses 42 through 47. Beloved, please hear me carefully. The pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost is not tongues. The pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost is not even the miracle of hearing in your own dialect. The pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost was not a powerful sermon. The pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost was not even the salvation of 3,000 individuals. The pinnacle of the miracle of Pentecost was the formation of a church, of the church, of the body of Christ, of the bride of Christ, of the temple of the Holy Spirit. Once these people were not a people, but now in Christ they had become a people. Once these people had not received mercy, but now in Jesus Christ they had received mercy. And because this was true, in Christ they became, as Peter would later say, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession that they together may proclaim the excellencies of him who called them out of darkness and into his marvelous light. The birth of the church is the primary miracle of Pentecost. Indeed, I think this gets us to the punch of the first two chapters. The church was born when Christ was proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. The church of Christ was born when the glory of Christ was proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. True proclamation of the gospel creates gospel community. The true proclamation of the gospel does not create a bunch of individuals who are only more or less connected to each other and who basically do whatever it is that they want to do. True gospel proclamation creates gospel community, and that gospel community is radically centered on Christ and characterized by at least eight things that I see in verses 42 through 47. I'm just going to list these off very quickly. If you look on the back of your bulletin, any given Sunday, those eight things are there because they formulate the core values of our church. But let me just say that in Acts 2, 42 to 47, these things characterize that church, and I think they ought to characterize every church that is in Christ Number one, the early church was characterized by holiness. The disciples, it says, devoted themselves. And utter devotion to Jesus is at the heart of holiness. We usually think about behavior when we think of holiness, but devotion to Jesus is the heart of holiness, and then behavior flows from that. It's the relationship that matters most, not the behavior. Two, the early church was characterized by the apostles' teaching, which is roughly equivalent to our Bible's. The apostles taught Jesus from the Old Testament. They taught about the life and times of Christ, which is like our Gospels. And then they taught about the implications of the life of Christ, which is like all of our letters. So roughly, to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching is to devote ourselves to the Bible as we know it. Three, the early church was characterized by a commitment to one another, They shared Christ in common, and so now they shared all things in common. And please don't fool yourself into believing that they weren't busy in the way that we're busy. Of course, the details are different, but everyone who's ever tried to make a life of themselves or for themselves has been busy. These people had plenty to do, but they were so captured by Christ that they decided that they should give themselves to each other. And that community itself was a proclamation of Jesus, as we'll see in a few minutes Number four, the early church was characterized by prayer. They were always calling upon the name of the Lord. Five, they were characterized by worship. They were always gathering to exalt the name of the Lord. Six, they were characterized by faith as they looked to God and trusted him to give signs and wonders through the apostles for the glory of his name and the joy of his people. Seven, they were characterized by love for the lost and they stood in awe as God added to their number day by day those who were being saved. So they had a passion, but God was doing all the action and the lost were getting saved. And then number eight, the early church was characterized by a soul-gripping vision of the glory of Christ that served as the glue for all of these things. It says in Acts chapter two there that they were just in awe. They were constantly in awe and they were in awe of Christ. He himself was the glue that held all of this together. Beloved, The story of Acts is the story of Jesus ministering through his church by the power of the Holy Spirit and therefore the pinnacle of Pentecost was the formation of that church. This is the punch. The climax of Peter's message was not that 3,000 individuals came to know Christ. The climax of Peter's message was that 3,000 individuals were formed into the body of Christ and I hope you can see that that is a miracle. What sin does is it gets inside of us and it divides us from each other because we all get super selfish. Sin basically says I'm gonna hide from you, I'm gonna hide from God and I'm gonna do whatever I need to do to get my way. That's what sin does. Sin divides, Christ unites. So when Christ came, when Christ poured out his Holy Spirit, these people were attracted to each other like glue and that glue was the ministry of Christ through the Holy Spirit. The formation of the church is the climax of the message of Peter and of the day of Pentecost. And because the Spirit had descended upon this new people, this new nation, they received power to witness to Christ. And I would submit to you that their witness was not just in one way, but it came in at least three ways. I think normally when we think about witnessing to Christ, we think about preaching the gospel or, or sharing a gospel tract or whatever. And that's a part of it. But I think there are at least three ways that these people witnessed to Christ by the power of the Spirit. First of all, They witness to Christ by their common love for Christ. Worship is itself a clarion call to the nations that Jesus is Lord. When the people of Elk River and the people in our lives and the people around the world see our our unceasing worship for Jesus, that actually proclaims Jesus. The worship of the church proclaims Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. Just their very worship, which they did in the temple complex day by day, witness to Christ. Second thing, they witness to Christ by their common love for one another. Tim Keller says that when the gospel is proclaimed, it forms gospel community, but then gospel community itself proclaims the gospel. When we come together in Christ with an unusual love, with a, a divine kind of love that's not like the love that you see in the world. When we, we relate to each other based on the deep covenantal commitment Jesus has to us, it screams to the world that we belong to Christ and it screams to the world that the love of Christ is very unusual and very good. Our love for one another is a witness to Christ and it comes by the power of the Holy Spirit. Third thing then is what we normally think of. The early church witnessed to Christ by speaking the word of Christ with the power of the Spirit. We'll see week after week how they kept proclaiming Christ and people kept coming to Christ. And and certainly to this day, this is a huge part of proclaiming Christ. Uh, Francis of Assisi gets blamed for this. Probably he never actually said this, but you might have heard uh, that it is said that he said (laughs) that preach Christ always and use words if you have to. Well, that's, that's really bad theology. We have to preach Christ with words. We must do that. But first, what we need is to wait upon the power of the Holy Spirit. And when he comes, he witnesses to Christ through our worship, through our love, and then through our words as an overflow. This is what happens when Christ sends his spirit upon his people. So then, quickly, let me just address the question of how all this applies to us here at GCF. And I wanna just begin by saying that I think that our church will grow when Christ is proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. When it happens in the way that Christ has always been doing what he does, then he will prosper this church. Sometimes church growth is visible and impressive. Other times, like I'm thinking of a couple of the churches that were in the letters to the Re- in, in the book of Revelation. Remember there are those seven letters that are written to the churches? Well, a couple of those churches were weak and small and they weren't growing fast and all of that. So I'm not saying that whenever the Spirit comes upon a church, it just explodes with visible growth. I don't think it always happens that way. When Peter preached at Pentecost, 3,000 came to Christ. When Stephen preached just a few chapters later, they killed him. Both were being obedient to Jesus. So I don't know exactly what it looks like, but qualitatively, quantitatively, whatever it is that God wants to do, what I know is that this church will grow, this church will prosper when we proclaim Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. That's a promise from Jesus, not from me. This church will grow and prosper as we learn to wait upon the promise of the Father together in our family devotions, in our community groups, in all of our meetings, in our Sunday morning worship services, in our Sunday school classes, wherever we gather, we just learn the art and the joy of waiting upon the promise, the presence, the power of the Holy Spirit and then going out in His name and with His power. And as the Lord grants us his power, I believe that like the early church, this church will witness to Jesus in Elk River by our common worship, our magnetic, ceaseless worship of Christ will draw people to Christ. We will proclaim Christ by our love for one another, unusual, divine, covenanted love for one another. And we will proclaim Christ with our words as we go by his will and with the power of his spirit. This church will grow when Christ is proclaimed by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're going to talk about this a lot more in the weeks to come, so please just remember that for now. And let's go before the Lord in prayer. We have about 10 minutes, so I'm just going to pray for a few. And if you want to pray out loud, that's fine. And if you want to just sit and pray in your heart, that's okay too. Father, to me it would be a sinful tragedy to look so closely at Acts 1 and 2 and to see what is there. And then to walk away and not be affected by what we saw, by what we learned, by what we heard. Lord, even as I was telling you this morning, I needed your power to preach about your power. And now, Lord, we need your power to do your will in the earth. We're about to scatter from this place and not many minutes from now. And Lord, we don't want to live life on our own terms. We want to live it on your terms. We want to wait upon the promise of the Father. We wanna know what it's like to receive the present and power of the Holy Spirit. We wanna know what it means to witness to you through our worship. We wanna know what it means to witness to you through our unusual love of one another. We wanna know what it means to witness to you with power and authenticity through our words as we scatter into our city this day. Lord, we want to watch you do the things that only you can do. And Father, we trust you for the particulars of your will for this church and every other church in our city. You may want numbers to grow. You may not. You may want certain things to look impressive. You may not. All of those things are up to you, Father. But what we want is to submit to your will until we receive your spirit. And when we receive your spirit, we want to passionately and powerfully witness to Christ. So please come, Father. Please be pleased, to let your spirit rest upon this church and give us everything we need to do your will for the glory of your name. Oh, Father, we trust you for this. And now, friends, if you want to pray in your heart or pray out loud, go ahead, and I'll close in a few minutes. Father, it's a true challenge for us in our culture, in our time, to be able to physically get together for a long period of time and pray and wait upon the promise of the Father. But I pray that you would help us, Lord. I pray that you would help us in your own knowledge of us, Lord. You know the challenges that are there for us, and you know the solutions as well. So I pray that you would just give us as a people the instinct that whenever we gather, we would spend significant time seeking your face, that we would be willing to spend half of a meeting or maybe three-quarters of a meeting just waiting upon you until you speak rather than just doing a bunch of things because it makes us feel like we're being productive. I pray that we would learn the secret of waiting upon the Lord until he speaks, until he moves, and then moving along with you. I pray that you would teach us the power of patience in your presence, O oh Lord. And I pray that we would learn the, the, the art, Lord, the joy of, of listening, hearing clearly the leadings of the Spirit. And I pray for humble hearts, Lord, that we would submit ourselves to you in whatever it is that you would call us to do. Lord, you are a consuming fire. So that likely means that as you grant your presence to this church, it's going to burn off dross. It's going to be painful. It's going to expose things. It's going to consume things. But that will be so good for us, Lord. Your purifying power is your empowering power. I meant to say your purifying fire is your empowering fire, Lord. Your rebuke of us only prepares us, and so we invite you to come, Lord. We invite you to prepare us in any way you need to prepare us. Lord, we are the bride of Christ, and I pray that you would fill this bride with the power to do your will. Lord, we surrender ourselves to you, and we thank you for what you will do, both now and in the coming days. And now we rise to praise the great and gracious name of Jesus. Amen. Please stand with me.